In this podcast, I share an interview I did with Joe Wynock and Lynn McCullough. They are, um, well, Lynn is the uh, operator of the True uh, Thrift Store in Boulder, Colorado. And Joe has done some work with Lean and Six Sigma and has been volunteering with her for the last couple years and share some of the success stories they've had and some of the struggles of applying these concepts to a thrift store. So um, I thought it'd be a really good topic to, sh- uh, to talk about and share their story and experiences. Kind of on that same topic, I think what I'm going to do is change up this podcast a little bit. I've called it Earth Consultants with a focus around Lean Six Sigma and the environment. And I still want to make that a very large portion of this, but um, I also want to kind of bring in the broader picture around Lean Six Sigma and sustainability and social good. I think I've mentioned before that I've put out um, a couple books now. I have a second book published under the uh, title Lean Six Sigma for Good. First one is just a story of my experience and my journey and is intended to try to motivate people to get more involved with their local communities and apply their skills and knowledge to that. And then I put together a second book that was a compilation of other people doing some uh, similar things and sharing their experiences and uh, successes and struggles as well. And so um, today's topic is, is both. It covers the broader impact that they're having with hospice care for the organization that they work in, um, but also there's environmental impacts with the amount of stuff that they've uh, diverted from the landfill. And so um, a lot of these topics have a lot of overlapping um, activity. So, so what I think I'm going to do is I'm going to retitle it to Lean Six Sigma for Good, and then I can bring in uh, a little bit more broader topics. But again, I'm still going to have a lot of focus and and I personally have a lot of passion around the environment, so there'll still be a lot of the activities that we talk about on here. Um, a little bit of background on Joe. He reached out to me. Um, he had taken my Lean Six Sigma for the Environment uh, free online course, and I'll link to a lot of these things in the, the, the notes for this podcast. But if you search on thinkific.com, it'll come up, or if you search, if you go to the Lean Six Sigma Environment.org website, you'll see free online course all over there. So he took the course and he learned about the waste walk method and the impact ease matrix, which is just a, you know, effort versus payoff or benefits. And uh, he said he applied that and he talks about that briefly in the interview. So I just wanted to give you a heads up around that. He also uh, submitted this as a project uh, last year. And so he achieved uh, um, an earth belt certification which is something I developed a couple years ago to uh, recognize people who have some basic knowledge on the Lean and Six Sigma. So you have to have some kind of training or experience prior to that, or you could go through the online course that I've set up that's free. And then you have to apply uh, a particular tool or concepts to a problem where you have an environmental impact. So Joe is a a great success story and and exactly the type of person I was hoping to reach and um, share the, uh, my background and experience with and, and see how he's taken this and kind of applied it to a real application. So that was really um, impactful for me and really makes it um, exciting to see that all the you know, work you're putting into these types of things is, is starting to pay off. So that was really great that Joe was able to kind of go through the course, 
pick up some helpful tools and then apply them to have a, a great impact um, on this nonprofit. So that was really, um, to me, really exciting to see that uh, some of the work I put together to, to put the course and the, the tools together has um, actually uh, been useful and applied. So again, look probably for the next podcast, you'll see um, a different uh, logo. Uh, the name might change. I'll probably pick with, uh, stick with Lean Six Sigma for good. I've started to interject a little bit of an intro and outro song to make it sound a little bit nicer and a little bit more professional. That's been kind of uh, building over the last couple episodes as well. So again, trying to get a little bit more formal on this. And then I, I think I'm starting to find this niche around the Lean Six Sigma for social good or just community benefit as a broader topic, which then will open it up to a lot of other uh, guests and interviews and topics. So uh, I'll probably link everything under the Lean Six Sigma for good.com website, which has a huge amount of articles and, and videos and podcast interviews that I found on the web that kind of um, will pull all this together. But I will continue to have the Lean Six Sigma environment.org website because I do want to have, have uh, one site that is dedicated just to environmental impacts. Uh, but the other one will be kind of broader, which will cover things like healthcare and natural disasters and donation processes like this. Okay, thanks for listening and hope you enjoy the interview. Okay, today I've got uh, a couple of guests with me, uh, Lynn McCullough and Joe Wynock. And, um, They've done some great work uh, applying Lean and Six Sigma methods to nonprofit. And so, Lynn, do you want to introduce yourself and talk about true community care and the work you've done at the thrift shop you got going there? Yes, um, I'm the thrift shop manager. We opened our thrift shop in 2005 to be a fundraiser for the programs of true community care. Our organization provides end-of-life care to those in our community, uh, whether they have the ability to pay or not. And um, so we opened the store to receive donations and try to raise some money, and we've been working towards that end ever since. And where in Colorado are you guys located? We're in Boulder. Boulder. Excellent. And Joe? So I got interested in uh, lean improvement techniques after reading uh, Lean Six Sigma for Good. And after talking to Lynn, uh, she identified some areas for improvement that we could work on um, at the thrift store. How did you get connected with Lynn at the thrift store? Well, Lynn's actually my sister. <laughs> oh, that's a good connection. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, Lynn, maybe we can talk about uh, uh, we, we had a, a lean tool to kind of help us with this, with the ease and impact matrix, um, but that kind of facilitated a discussion about different things that could be done. You know, Lynn, what, what's great working with Lynn, she has this long list, this long idea list of all, all the great improvements that can be done. So uh, maybe Lynn, uh, if you could give your perspective of that discussion and, uh, you know, deciding upon how much effort it takes for a particular improvement versus the benefit. Yes, so I think that was where Joe and I started talking is I just was at a, a turning point with the store. Um, we had grown the business, things were going well, but 
uh, the things were kind of getting out of control. Donations were pouring in at a speed that we couldn't handle with the staff that we had or the volunteers that we had. Um, sales were suffering because we were getting bogged down in the sorting room. And being a nonprofit, there was really no way to add extra human hours to the problem. We had hit a point where there were just we were at our limit with staff hours as well as available volunteer hours. So it was time to refine our processes a little bit better. And um, I can honestly say when I first started talking to Joe about it, I was in just this complete state of overwhelm, not really understanding how to fix the problem, but at least I, being able to see what the problems were. And um, a big problem was that it was hard to, for me to describe to volunteers coming in what could they do to help. Uh, when you walk into a sorting room that is overflowing with stuff, it's hard to explain to someone how can you make a difference in this moment. Um, so I think one of the first turns the conversation took was that I felt like the sales floor was in pretty good shape. We were selling things fairly organized, but uh, the sorting room was really the point of contention. We had been, staff had been receiving and sorting donations out in the parking lot, out in the elements a lot, and sometimes just the best we could do would be just to bring everything in at the end of the day and fill up whatever little aisles we might have had. Mm -hmm. So that was the first big, like, okay, this is where we can have an improvement made. Joe, do you, did you want to mention how you, how you helped me figure out some of these things we started to quantify, or should I just keep talking about... Oh, oh, sure. So um, after um, identifying that the donation in room is, is where uh, we wanted to work, we had some hands-on uh, waste walks or um, uh, kind of Kaizena dance, kind of go into the donation room itself and uh, kind of work through the sorting and, and pricing. So if I'm remembering right, there, there's are there four or five departments in the sorting room? Yes, exactly. We have it, it broken up into pretty much it's clothing, books, things that have to be tested, and hard goods. And so the, 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 the inflow of, of the donations, uh, Lynn was absolutely right, is just um, a large amount of material coming in every day, and uh, it's just hard to, to, to get through all that at the same rate that material was coming in. Kind of walked through and, and kind of did a back of the envelope look at um, basically line balancing. How much of material is coming in? What's the mix? How much can be sorted in each area? Um, and where, where does it go after it's been sorted, basically? Um, and so the, it, it can go to the shop floor if it's uh, in uh, good condition and, and it's been priced. And then it, if not, there's several different streams that it can go through. Um, what I thought was neat, Lynn, was uh, you have an area for other nonprofits to pick up materials that they might uh, have a use for. That's right. We started a giving room, and we were able to partner. There's a lot of other nonprofits in our area that do good work. So we're able to offer items that we're not able to sell to shelters and soup kitchens and children's programs and schools and so, and so that's kind of a nice thing to not have to throw the things away. It's also a, it's been a nice networking thing to get to know some of the other nonprofits um, and, and what their challenges have been and how in some ways they can help us as well. Um, so that's, that, so that, that's one, on the, one of the, the streams. You also work with a, a, clothes, a clothing recycler? 
Yes, exactly. So all the all the clothing that can't be sold um, can be sent to a textile recycler. So we're able to, to recoup a little bit of money from that, and then they're able to sell the clothing to other markets. We've also been able to partner with scrap metal recyclers as well as EcoCycle in our area does the single stream recycling. And they've helped us figure out book recycling as well. So you almost have to be an expert in the recycling system and what is allowable, right, to help people, the customers and donors, decide what they can do with their items if you don't take them and, and then what you can do with the donations that don't sell or Yep, we, we made a donations guide that was helpful for people. We can send them on to other places that can take the items if we're not able to. We've also piloted a program where people can make donations for us to take and dispose of items for them that they just maybe don't want to make that second trip to the hard to recycle center. So it's, it's been working out pretty well with that. Yeah, I think a lot of frustration with residents is that they feel like they have to take so many different trips to each specialty area and anywhere mm -hmm. that they can reduce that down and say, can someone just tell me what to do? <laughs> I can't exactly. figure it out. That can really be nice a little benefit for them. Yeah. And it's been helpful too because it also kind of helps, it, it helped us start the conversation with our customers. Um, when we first opened our business, I really was just kind of trying to get the word out and really taking just about anything, trying to figure out myself what is sellable and what is not sellable. And over the years, what people will buy does change, so especially with technology items. Something in 2005 that we could sell like CDs were commanding really great prices in 2005, and now we're struggling to sell CDs, things like that. So we're, we've been able to start a conversation with the customers. Um, so they, they've become aware, oh, okay, I can't just bring you everything. You can help me, but I'm not just going to dump it at the door. I'm going to come inside and talk to you. We've um, been able to start sorting the donations with our customers, which was a huge change for us. Mm -hmm. We were used to people just coming in and dumping at the door, dumping outside the door, and just leaving. And so now we're talking with our customers. We're helping to educate them. They're feeling happier and, and feeling like their donation is, is able to do more good because they're able to start refining what they are bringing to us. That's sometimes counterintuitive for people too because it's going to take a little longer to interact and go through the stuff with them there. Um, but to your point, it's the education is really valuable for the next time and future trips and their ability to educate their friends and family. So that, exactly. that, that kind of investment does pay off in the long run. And that was something, like when I started working with Joe, I, I was saying, we don't have time for this. We can't do this. I don't see how this can ever happen. <laughs> and I think that's what a lot of people running any type of nonprofit business, they feel that way. We don't have the resources to do this. But when you can make a plan, you know, then you actually realize, okay, this is, this is in the long run saving me time. And it really is. Our customers start to become our advocates and our partners. Lynn, didn't you also start almost limiting the, the hours that you would accept donations? Yes, so that was like a, a really scary moment. I had told Joe there is just no way that we can close our do doors for donations because once somebody maybe gets disappointed, I was worried they wouldn't come back. So that was a really scary thing to do, but I um, took the risk after we gathered the data and realized we need to do something so that we can handle the donations and honor them in the best way. So we closed uh, the doors for donations on Mondays, and we, we 
started uh, limiting the number of days we're available to receive donations. We did a plan where we let everybody know in advance that's what we were doing, and I think that was mm -hmm. the key part. So people kind of knew this was coming. And the surprise for me was limiting our donations days. It gave us that extra time to catch up, um, and it didn't turn people away. They still came and brought donations. <laughs> so <laughs> it, it didn't hurt us in any way other than we, we were able to get more sellable items out to the sales floor. So our sales have actually been better since we've uh, limited our donations hours. Yeah, I can imagine that would be kind of scary to, to try out. What ultimately let you decide to give, to give it a shot? Because I think that is some, a barrier a lot of people have with improvement is, I don't know if it's going to work or not. Joe had kind of painstakingly worked with us as far as getting the staff to count the number of donations coming in and number of donations going out to the floor, just kind of roughly, and number of donations going to trash. And I could kind of see like we were really spending a lot of our paid staff time, especially on the receiving end, and not enough time on the output side. So that's kind of what gave me the confidence. And to be honest, I was, I was just sort of at a, at a breaking point. Something was going to have to change. We really couldn't go on the way we were going. So I think sometimes that helps the argument is to look at the data, you know, and then say, okay. We, it's it's worth the risk. <laughs> yeah, and you got into that the pressure of not feeling like you're able to catch up and willing to try something new. That's yeah, that's great. So I guess how did that go? Um, I, I well, it went really well, and um, we were able to. We actually limited the number of days we send our truck out into the neighborhood as well, and that was also another scary thing. Um, I think the hardest thing was getting staff, uh, staff buy-in at first. Um, when we first, w it was hard for me to present to them that this was going to be a positive thing and that nobody's in trouble, everybody's doing a good job, but let's, let's see what we can do that might be better. Um, once people, staff and volunteers, started to see that it was working, then they really got behind it. But it was just getting that first few steps going was pretty difficult. I think Joe remembers a couple of kind of like tough, tough days in the sorting room trying to get get the <laughs> get the machine going. Um, but especially once the volunteers started having their workspaces back, they started saying, "Okay, I can see how my four hours is really going to make a difference." Um, then they they all started adding their energies to it. Um, one of the best things were the sorting concentrated sorting times. Joe helped bring in groups of people. And just being able to have a group of 10 or 15 people for four hours in a concentrated way was able to open up the receiving area so that the donations receiving person could have a work space. And I know that sounds funny, but we, we literally didn't even have a workspace to receive donations at the time. No, I, I completely understand. I've been through a couple different donation-based nonprofits, and space is a premium, and it just kind of you know, there's that desire to hold on to everything. You're trying to keep things out of the landfill and find a home for it, and maybe someone else will come in tomorrow and get this, or um, can, someone will need this someday, or we might need this someday for a future project, and it's hard to realize that you can't collect everything and keep everything, and I, I understand that's mm -hmm. very difficult. Yeah, and then the uh, the other side to that, why why it was really great to streamline our systems is since we do use volunteers to run the store, we really can't exist without our volunteers. And that 
that labor number of hours is, is variable. People may take time off to travel. They may take time off because it's a holiday. So the hours are really variable. So if we can have a system that can run itself with fewer people, then it's much easier to keep things going. Yeah, that flexibility is really key for any kind of organization for mm -hmm. efficiencies. And so having the dedicated receiving area set up, we've actually been able to, since we're working with our customers, we can receive donations with one person. And it used to take three people to be able to go out to someone's car, get the stuff, bring it where it needs to go. Now people are bringing it in themselves. We're chatting with them, and we can pr most of the time get it done with one person. Yeah, especially if they're helping. <laughs> mm -hmm. Exactly, and, and that was that was another thing. I was very happy to see that the customers were really interested in learning. They were happy to help. They they enjoy learning more. So that was the other thing. I was a little concerned that maybe customers would uh, say no. <laughs> I don't want to help you, <laughs> but but they were they were happy to help. Well, I think you're attracting uh, a very special group of people that would come and donate and want to see your organization succeed. I am surprised I and then also probably not too surprised as well. Yeah, I agree. Um, people do want to to support the programs and, and at their heart they, that's what why they're here. Um, and it's just sort of getting to that point where the donations really are making a big difference. In, in some ways, um, that, that practice is combining things that used to happen in two separate steps, you know, receiving and then sorting. So now it's almost like receiving and sorting all in the same step now that the customers are, are that involved. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was, you know, it's, it's been a while and things have been running so much more smoothly. I have to kind of go back in time and think about it, but it's true. We were just having people bring things in and leave it anywhere they could, and then we had to go back and deal with it. So when someone would drop off something that uh, you, you didn't accept or was hidden in the bottom of the bag or underneath something, you guys have to deal with that cost and deal with the, if you have to throw it away, you have to have a bin available and get picked up and pay for all that, correct? Exactly. Yeah, so we've, um, you know, we have dumpster hauling fees every week. We, if we have large items that we can't sell, we have to haul it to the dump. So there's a lot of costs associated with things we can't sell. And by being able to intercept more of those things at the door, that certainly has helped our bottom line. Our, our hauling has, we, we haul less now, which is, has been really good for us. Would that mean if through the sorting process um, changes or was there other things that were done to lower the number of, uh, the cost there on the hauling? Yeah, so the second kind of another part of that was developing a sorting guide that would, Joe took pictures of things that were either desirable or undesirable, and he helped to write a guide from that, that was more from the volunteer point of view to show an incoming volunteer in a very cooperative way what are the things that are usable, what is a good way to approach this. Um, so helping to raise the understanding of volunteers of what we can sell has been helpful. That did translate to the sales floor. Um, we were real, I was slowly realizing with help from data that we were filling the sales floor with low value items that just really weren't selling or were selling for very low prices. So by helping to retrain the volunteers, we've been able to get them to come around to pricing desirable items 
at more of a market value and not pricing things that just aren't going to sell. It's that sort of, you kind of touched on that a little bit, Brian, about that wishful thinking thing, like, well, maybe someone could use this, <laughs> but kind of doing that reality check, like, is, is this going to justify the space it takes on the sales floor? Like, every item has to sell to justify the, the space it's taking up. Yeah, that's true. So that helped quite a bit as well, just to help, help in a nice way, because we, um, with volunteers, you always want to keep them inspired, keep them feeling good, and not coming down like, why didn't you do this better, but just kind of bringing them along with the thought process of, I think we could do this. We need to make sure that this doesn't go to the sales floor. And then one thing with our volunteers that helps them a lot is they know that most most things are being recycled. So even if we're not going to sell it, it's not necessarily going to be thrown away. That helps them with the mental feeling of like wanting to make use of everything that they possibly can. Right, right. Well, one thing that, that you had uh, going on on the shop floor that I, I was really impressed by was the, the stock rotation. Maybe we could describe that a little bit. Yeah, um, I had kind of realized that early on, you can't just put stuff out to the sales floor. It's not all going to sell. You hope it does, but it, it, not everything sells. And most of your thrift shoppers are regulars, so they come in multiple times a week, and they're going to buy things when they first see them, and the things that sit are just going to sit. And so everything we put out to the sales floor has a month code or a month color, and that way we know every – in a slower time, it's every three months we're completely – resetting the sales floor. We go through department by department and pull off the unsold items. Um, in busier times, busier donation times, that might get compressed to culling um, every two months or every month. But we're making sure that customers coming in are going to see new things each time they come in. And that also helps support, so, so the shop floor is, is pulling materials in from the donations room um, through that cycle happening. Um, so you really get a nice uh, material flow going uh, between uh, donations being dropped off, sorting, pricing, and then going to the floor or going to um, wherever the next you know appropriate uh, spot is. And it's a it's a balance that has to happen. That's sort of what I hadn't realized is over the years we'd just sort of shifted into this really out of balance sequence where too not enough was making that full cycle. <laughs> How do you track um, and look at donations versus sales? You mentioned some data that Joe is collecting and helping with. Do you guys have a way to track that in some way? I know that's a challenge for a lot of the donation nonprofits, especially the smaller ones that don't really have a way to track coming in and what's going out other than maybe dollars or categories of dollars. What's yeah, your current system? Yeah, for a long time we've been able to track our sales, and I think most businesses do that where you can say, I sold this much of this department. But it was important for us to kind of look at, part of it, it was more just visually looking at the piles, like how how much of this pile did we end up keeping? How much did, did it go to the sales floor? And then ultimately how much got culled off the sales floor? So it's, it's a little hard to put hard numbers on, but you can certainly... Uh, do rough estimates, and I think that was what was really helpful for me. And Joe can talk more about that, I think, than I can. Like the the tables and the graphs, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. So for each uh, sorting area, it, it's basically its own department, and we just looked at roughly um, what's the quantity in versus quantity out. 
and where are the largest imbalances, you know, where are the largest number of quantity, quantity of items coming in, and then they just kind of get stuck in the donations room. So that's really what we're working to try to prevent is just try to keep things flowing through the donations room because um, it, it's a middle area, you know. It, it's, it's not really helping anybody to have a lot of material there. What's mm-hmm. useful is to get it to the sales floor, get it to the giving room, um, you know, or, or get it to the recyclers, you know. One of the recyclers shows up, and the bin's not full, you know, they've wasted a trip, right? So yeah. kind of working out the timing of let's make sure our recycling bins outside are full uh, when when the truck comes up to pick it up. You know, I, I'm trying to think what some of the largest uh, areas were where we showed an imbalance. Was it furniture? It was, yeah, I think furniture. kind of bulky items. And that was... Um one of those things I was really blind to because furniture is a huge part of our business and you know that's that's why we bring our truck out to the neighborhoods and pick up the furniture but we had hit a point where uh, our back room was full of furniture the sales floor was full of furniture and not so much was selling and that the way we really improved that was just Joe shined a light on it and we talked about well what can we do about this and I worked with the driver assistants and we we talked about, we trained everybody a little bit more about what is the furniture that sells for us? What is the furniture that doesn't sell for us? How can we talk to customers about this? We updated our donations guide. We produced a fee schedule. So if you're just in a bind, if you're moving and you don't have time to deal with the couch that we just said no to, you can make a donation to cover our costs plus a little bit, and we can still take it from you. Um, it, it's kind of a win-win that way. We take the pressure off the customer who maybe just doesn't have any time to deal with it. Um, helps us because in the past we might just feel like we had to take that couch that we weren't going to sell just to be nice, but then mm-hmm. we're also having to go to the dump and pay money to dispose of that. So that was a huge difference to do that. Yeah, I think that's important because you are adding value for the customer as, you know, they, they're in a bind and you're helping them out. Yeah, and, they, and it makes us feel good too because then they're, they're, they at the end of the day feel like, okay, I did help hospice in some way. Even if they couldn't take my item, I was still able to help. Um, so that was, that was a really big change for us and um, that helped quite a bit. We're able to just bring in more furniture that we know we can sell. So furniture is taking up a lot less space in the sorting room now, so more room for other work. Mm-hmm. Um, well, one of the other changes was kind of inspired by the changes in furniture. The volunteers in the book department got together and spent a lot of time figuring out more about what what are sellable books, what are not sellable books, what can we do with the books that we're not going to sell. So they were kind of inspired by what they saw us doing in furniture to try to do a similar thing in books. So the book department at one time was completely overflowing with books, and we really didn't know what to do. We could price books very quickly, but we would very quickly overflow the sales floor with books. They just weren't going to sell fast enough. And so we were able to develop a plan to sort faster what comes in, get a better standard of of what we know will sell and what won't sell, and also volunteers who are skilled in understanding what will sell better on Amazon. So we've been able to expand online sales to take pressure off the sales floor. So we've really been able to raise a lot more revenue with books that way. Um, And then don't don't you also uh, sell kind of unique items on uh, Craigslist? 
Yes, yeah, so um, that was actually we kind of did a, a, a bunch of different things to take pressure off the sales floor, reach more customers. Um, so unusual items that we think may take longer to sell. Sometimes it's because it's a larger piece of furniture. Uh, we've been able to to get it listed on Craigslist, and Craigslist is nice because we can list for Boulder Craigslist or Denver Craigslist, so we can reach a bigger audience that way, and it's often free or very inexpensive to list. So we've been able to pull in customers from further away that might be interested in the things that we have. Um, and so those kinds of things, like we were able to do more with eBay and Etsy, and that just has helped because we can reach more people that way. Maybe the local area isn't interested in it, but someone else would. Do you yeah, do anything with uh, pricing at all? During, like if there's an item that's been there, is there any kind of discount for the age of the item? Or you just use the colors and then you call out items that have been there too long? Well, we, um, we run a bunch of uh, half-price sales throughout the month. So twice a month I run a 50% off everything in the store sale, and that okay. really helps reduce numbers. And then we do smaller sales too. We might do a clothing bag sale. We try to time that um, at the end of the month when the clothes have been on the sales floor the longest. So we'll, we'll say for $8 you can fill a shopping bag with any clothes that you want, that kind of stuff. Mm. We don't right now have really much ability to automatically do discounts, so it's all done by hand. Like we go through collectibles and red line things to make them half price. Um, we're hoping someday to have a system where the discounts could be more automatic. Um, but the, the discount days really do bring a lot of uh, foot traffic into the store, it seems like. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, the 50% off days. People line up. We'll have 50 people waiting for the store to open. <laughs> so it's, it's a really fun day to move a lot of stuff. Do you have to staff differently those days? So what I do on those days is I, I try really hard. To, I send out a sales email to the volunteers asking if they can help. To, so I do try to bring in extra help on those days. Um, it's our regular volunteers would normally do a four-hour shift on cashiering, but on a 50% off day, the volume is so high that two hours is an awful lot. So we try to just make sure that it, there's enough people coming in. It's not always perfect, um, but we do the best we can. Mm -hmm. Do you say <laughs> like it's completely uh, volunteer, or do you have some staff members? We do. Like we have staff? five paid staff members, okay. and we're open seven days a week. And uh, we rely on a core group of volunteers. We have a little over 100 volunteers yeah. that help us out. And they're anywhere from retirees to students to families, a um, little bit of everything. We work with um, a work uh, food stamps program as well as community service through the court systems as well. And it, it seems like um, you work with people, uh, the volunteers, uh, to find out where they have a an interest area or a skill, or it, it seems like for each area you have almost an expert or I several do. experts. That's right. I mean, the nice thing about meeting people who want to volunteer, they're usually interested in the mission. Then you kind of get to know them as time goes by. Uh, a lot of our volunteers are retired, so they've had a lifetime of experience. Mm -hmm. And when I get to know people, I like to show them a little bit of everything in the store, but I can tell when their eyes light up. I can <laughs> see when they're interested in something, and then we talk more about it. Uh, a lot of our electronics volunteers are retired engineers, and you know they can certainly teach me a lot about how to fix and value electronics. 
Uh, we have a lot of retired teachers that volunteer, so they can help me a lot with, you know, how to make signs more clear to people and how to get our systems a little more um, navigable to someone just coming in. So it's it's really kind of cool to meet such a great group of talented people and find out what they love to do. And usually, what people love to do is also what they're really good at. Very cool. Uh, and I, I was kind of impressed. You have an arts and collectibles area. Yes. Mm hmm. And so we have some volunteers. A lot of them have previous either careers in art. Like we have a, a art, our art expert is a retired art teacher. And some of our volunteers are retired from running antique stores themselves. So they really know a lot about early American Depression glass or collectible, you know, things that it would be hard to find. Not everything has a label on it that you can Google. And so that's been kind of my joy is I get to learn from all these great people that come in to help. And I think yeah. you made a good point um, of leveraging their skills and knowledge too. Instead of having them back sorting clothes when they could be out pricing valuable antiques and cool collectible items. Exactly. And sometimes, you know, it takes me a while to, to realize what somebody's skill is because some people are more upfront about their skills and some people it takes a while to get to know them. But I've, mm -hmm. I have had that experience. I had a wonderful volunteer who hung clothes for me for two years and hated every moment of it and never let on to me <laughs> at all. And one day um, she realized that I needed help with administrative stuff like organizing and making forms and distributing copies of things. And once she got into that, she just blossomed. She had so much fun. And she's like, oh, I always hated the clothes. And I was like, wow, <laughs> thanks for telling me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it's, it is, you see a huge difference when somebody's happy with their work. It, it is kind of amazing, the, the, the finds that you guys make. Um, is there uh, any particular finds in the last couple of weeks that kind of stick out for you? Well, we've been um, very lucky, actually. We've been finding some great collectibles. We had a nice old um, enamel, like made it a Japanese enamel jewelry box with a jade top come through that we were able to sell for $70. Mm. Um, this time of year, uh, we've, we're trying to go through all the artwork and things that maybe we've been sitting on because we don't know what to do with. So we've had some nice oil, original oil paintings come through. Um, that we've been able to sell for good values, like in the 200s. And um, the other kind of nice find, it's less glamorous, but we've, we are able to recoup revenue when we find scrap items, like scrap silver and scrap gold. So that's been really helpful lately to raise revenues, just mm -hmm. broken jewelry that has precious metals as part of it. So that's, that's another kind of layer that we work with as well. So let's talk about the mission a little bit. How does your store support that mission? And as things are getting better, it sounds like um, things are picking up a little bit. Or what what is done with some of the funds? I'm assuming you guys are providing those funds to another group, yeah, so or you guys are providing some services for people directly. Yes. So 100% of the thrift shop um, profits go to True Community Care, and True Community Care has we've started out as uh, Hospice of Boulder County. So Hospice was really the beginnings for us, and that was um, in 1976. And, but what, we're, what we do is we offer hospice services, but also grief support to the community. So we have open to the public grief services, grief groups. One of the only, we're one of the only uh, groups in the country that offers that. 
Um, so our grief groups can cover lots of different things. Um, one of the really maybe more interesting programs is Healing with Horses. They offer children who are experiencing grief can go and, and be with therapy horses as well to help work through their grief. And um, our organization also offers palliative care. Um, and then we have opened what we call the PACE Center, True PACE, and that's a service to the elderly who aren't in hospice, generally still live at home, but need support services so they can come to the PACE Center and receive medical care as well as um, social interaction with other people. They do fun activities and things like that. Um, so a lot of different things that the money from the thrift shop goes to support. So do you run just the thrift shop or do you also oversee that part of the operations as well? I'm, I am just the thrift shop manager. It's a big job. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I'm kind of glad to hear that, actually. <laughs> that would, sounds like that's a lot of work that goes yeah. on there, but there's Yeah, there's a great group in philanthropy that does other sources for fundraising for our organization. The thrift shop accounts for about a fourth of the fundraising efforts for the organization. So anything else? This is great. I think um, it sounds like you guys are making some great progress. And um, Joe, can you just talk briefly about your background? I mean, you jumped right in and started giving some good tips and advice. But you've seen some of this work before, right? You've, you have a background in quality. Can you talk about that real quick? Oh, sure, yeah. Um, I, I, I first got introduced to lean in um, electronics manufacturing, and I did that for a few years. More recently, I've been uh, focused on uh, quality and, and compliance, compliance and regulatory related activities. But uh, the opportunity to volunteer and uh, have an improvement focus, I, I find uh, rewarding. And um, uh, I, I really like the lean techniques because you can see results fairly quickly, and it, it's all pretty hands-on. You know, you, you try something, you see if it works. If it doesn't, then you learn from that and you try again. It's just kind of a neat journey. Um, it's really uh, neat to see how one area starts to improve, and then, uh, like Lynn mentioned, uh, other volunteer areas start to improve their own areas on their own with their own ideas. I mean, mm -hmm. and that's really ideal, and it's just great to see and rewarding. And I will say that's kind of the end result of all of this is that the volunteers are happier, the staff, we're, our jobs are easier, we're making more money, the customers are happier. You know, there's there's a lot of nice outcomes to all of this work. I would I didn't really expect that when Joe started talking about a quality improvement project. Mm -hmm. My first thought was, wow, I don't have time for this. <laughs> <laughs> sounds like more work. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. It sounds like more work. <laughs> I'm already too busy, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's that's amazing, I and mean, that's you can't really ask for anything better than that. Than a win-win for everybody, customers, the mission, the volunteers, the staff, the team, the environment. I mean, that's it's amazing. It was a a hard hard journey, but it was well worth it. What's well, kind of the duration? When um, I remember Joe talking about this last year, sometime maybe maybe that's when I you first clued me in on that, maybe started that a little bit earlier than that, but what kind of time frame are we talking about? Just because uh, I think some people 
have different ideas of how long some of some of that work will take. When did you really start kind of getting serious about this? Yeah, so it started in the summer of 2018. And I think that the, the project project was about six months, but we're, we kind of are still working on things. It's just been able to get us into uh, more detail as time has gone on. Um, but I would say the, the project was about six months. Mm -hmm. So starting in the summer last year? Okay. Is that right, Joe? Is that a year? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The summer of 2018, a really focused effort in that six-month period, and then just a regular follow-up uh, over the course of the past year or so. And what did that look like for you, Joe, for time? Did you go, how often were you over there? How much time were you spending during that six months and then kind of ongoing? Just, I think that would be uh, really interesting to just kind of hear the time commitment. It was about um, a few hours uh, every couple weeks for me, and, and that would be a, a chance to take a look at uh, things in the donations room, talk to Lynn about how the last two weeks have gone, um, are there any adjustments we want to make for the next two weeks, and, um, and, and that sort of thing. And, and that was kind of the, the, the six-month intensive period was the, the two-week follow-up. Yeah, same, same with you, Lynn, on your end. Um, I'm sure there's homework that was going on in between times Joe had arrived, but just the meetings with him when he came in and him working with your team, is that about a couple hours every couple weeks of time? Yeah, I would say the only thing that was really more would be the volunteer days that were a solid four-hour block, so there were a few of those. The, the time involved was fairly minimal from from my point of view, I, I was um, talking to people about implementing things, but really um, from the beginning, Joe helped me get, get a cooperative feeling to the project, so staff were also welcome to bring in their ideas and react and things like that. So a lot of people were helping, so it wasn't necessarily a ton of time for me. I think it was more just um, mentally changing the way you look at a problem <laughs> that's difficult. Yeah. That was the the real work was being able to slowly change how I did things, how I looked at things. I, I can remember meeting after a couple of weeks with Joe doing a check-in and just being like, I just, I don't know how to change myself or how I'm doing this. That was the hardest thing was changing old habits. Mm -hmm. yeah. But then what's cool is you get momentum and then the whole culture changes, people like our habits now are the habits that work better for us, and that makes it so much easier. Anything else? What else uh, you'd like to share or any other examples or things we didn't, we didn't cover yet? The, the waste worksheets um, were, were pretty helpful in, in looking at what types of things we might do, uh, you know, in, in the, in the hands-on uh, four-hour time block uh, when, when, you know, tried to get uh, more volunteers uh, in. I was able to uh, recruit uh, some people from where I work to volunteer. Um, and, and so just kind of the, 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 the waste uh, framework of, uh, was really helpful. We, we did focus a lot on, on solid waste streams just because of the nature of the donation, but um, mm -hmm. that, that was a very helpful worksheet to, to kind of structure and plan the activity with. So you, um, on the waste walk, then you had, that was part of that four-hour period. And then you also mentioned, like, the impact effort. So at, at, after you guys identified some opportunities and you 
you say you also use that sheet to rank them and come up with the ones you wanted to dig into first? Is that all part of the four hours, I guess? The, the impact and ease matrix uh, was kind of the, the idea session ahead of the, the waste uh, okay. lock activity. Um, and then kind of helps to, to talk out the, the ideas um, and, and trying to sort out, well, okay. <laughs> They're all good ideas, right? Um, but you can't do everything all at once. That, that's where the that prioritization by the quadrants was helpful. I thought. Um, I don't know. And what what did you think? Yeah, I think that was really where I started to be able to hone in on some things that we could focus on. I, I'm, it's kind of coming back to me now. I remember just sort of unloading maybe 15 or 20 <laughs> items on Joe about things I thought could be improved. <laughs> but then, how do you make that decision? You can't do them all. You know, how do you know what is the most important thing to start with. So it was really, it was a nice visual way to look at what c could potentially be the biggest gains uh, that, like, what are the e things that might not even take a lot of work to do? Let's start with those, you know, and get, get a little success under our belt. And that, that did help. Like, there are things you can do uh, very quickly that will give you a big gain. And that was helpful to be able to see that. Uh, relying on maybe two or three tools or methods, um, it, it really drove the, the whole improvement effort. Yeah, because I'm sure your brain is thinking of lots of different tools you could implement or try out. <laughs> it's hard to yeah, keep it simple. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. And, um, but keeping it simple help, helps us to be more, more effective. And right. um, it, it's not so much about using the tools, but, but looking for uh, the, the improvement. So where can people get a hold or reach out to you if they have other questions or want to connect? Um, maybe the website or through hospice and the true community care. Um, and then maybe contact information or ways they can connect, whether you have a social media account or something or email. Absolutely, yeah. We have our website is truecare.org forward slash thrift shop. T-R-U-C-A-R-E dot org. And we are also True Thrift on Facebook and Instagram. And so if they reach out through there, they can get a hold of you or? Exactly, yep. They okay. can email me. Our, our, our email is thriftshop at truecare.org. And Great. that would be, yeah, resources about volunteering as well. Okay. And, uh, and Joe? Yeah, I've got a think, I've right. got a blog called uh, globalquality.blog, uh, and yep, I can be reached through that. Okay. Well, thank you both for your time and sharing. Um, I think this is a great story and a continued success as you evolve and improve and um, make more changes and find better ways to do things. And um, I think there's a lot of organizations. I'm just kind of thinking even locally here in Portland that I know could, are going to pick up some tips from this discussion, but um, I was also at a conference last month and talking to other organizations that are receiving in donation, donations, and they're all having some similar struggles with, with that. So, you know, anything we can do to share those best practices and give people different ideas and ways to think about it, I think is going to be really powerful. Absolutely. Thanks for the opportunity. Sure. Okay, thanks. All right, thanks a lot. Okay, thanks, bye. Man. All right, bye, man.